0: Chapter Twenty Two of Love Romances of the Aristocracy. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Kate Fallis. Love Romances of the Aristocracy by Thornton Hall. Chapter Twenty Two Two Irish Beauties in the winter of seventeen forty five the city of dublin was thrown into a state of high excitement by the appearance of a couple of girls from the wilds of Connaught, whose almost unearthly beauty won the instant homage of every man from his excellency the earl of harrington then lord lieutenant to the sourest jarvie who cracked a whip in her streets to quote the pardonably extravagant language of a chronicler of the time they swam into the social firmament of the irish capital like twin planets of dazzling splendor eclipsing all other constellations as if the pall of night had been drawn over them they had grown to girlhood so the story ran from mouth to mouth in a ruinous thatched house in the shadow of castle coote in county roscommon and were the daughters of john gunning a roistering happy-go-lucky dram-drinking squireen whose most serious occupation in life was keeping the broker's men on the right side of his door and at the time this story opens they were living in a cottage rented for a modest eight pounds a year on the outskirts of dublin with their mother who was a daughter of lord mayo to say that all dublin was at the feet of the gunning sisters at the first sight of their lovely faces and dainty figures is an unadorned statement of fact the young bloods of the capital were their slaves to a man ready to spill the last drop of blood for them and every gallant of the viceregal court drank toast to their beauty and vied with his rivals to win a smile or a word from them Peg woffington it is said threw up her arms in wonder at the sight of them and as she hugged each in turn declared that she had never seen anything half so sweet and tom sheridan went down on his knees in involuntary homage to the majesty of their beauty it was Tom Sheridan who placed his stage wardrobe at their disposal when they were invited to the great Vice Regal Ball in honor of King George's birthday, and attired as Lady Macbeth and Juliet respectively, they danced the stately minuet and rollicking country dances with such grace and abandon that lords and ladies stopped in their dances and mounted on chairs and tables to feast their eyes on so rare and ravishing a sight with betty as with maria says mr frankfort Moore, the art of the dance had become part of her nature her languorous eyes were in sympathy with the voluptuous movements of her feet and lithe body and the curves made by her arms formed an invisible chain that held every one entranced the caresses of her fingers the coyness of her curtsies the allurements of her movements all the graces and charms inwoven that make up the poem of the minuet became visible by the art of that exquisite girl until all other dancers became commonplace by comparison such was the fascination of their beauty that it is said the sisters were one day drugged by a party of licentious admirers whose guests they had innocently consented to be and were actually being carried away by their ravishers when sheridan who had got wind of the plot appeared on the scene with a number of stout armed friends and effected their rescue but even dublin was no suitable market for such peerless beauties mrs gunning decided through her they had the blood of the Plantagenets in their veins, and no man less than a duke or an earl, certainly not an Irish squire or impoverished lord, was a fitting match for her daughters. And so, to England and London, they were carried, flushed with their conquests, leaving broken hearts behind them, and heralded across the channel by many a sonnet singing their beauty. But although each was equally fair, the sisters were by no means alike in their charms. Maria, all gladness and mirth, was a sprightly brunette, in whose laughing glances shone the fires of a pleasure seeking soul. While Elizabeth, the younger, with soft blue eyes and dark golden hair, although infinitely more placid, was no less radiant than her dashing sister. Each was, to quote another description divinely tall with a figure of perfect symmetry and a grace of dignity enhanced by the proud poise of the small grecian head faultless also were the rounded arms and the hands with their long slender tapering fingers all the portraits of elizabeth reveal the same dainty disdainful lips in the shape of a cupid's bow the long slender nose the half drooping lids and lashes in coloring there was the same delicacy a soft ivory pallor shone in her face a flush of pink warmed her cheeks there was a gleam of gold as the sunbeams touched her light brown hair such in the cold medium of type were the two irish sisters who took london by storm and who made more noise than any of their predecessors since the days of helen in the summer of seventeen fifty one their conquest was immediate electrifying london raved about the new beauties they were the theme of every tongue from the court to the meanest coffee-house even grub street rubbed its eyes in amazement at the wonderful vision and ransacked its dictionaries for superlatives and the poets with one accord struck their lyres to a new inspiration whenever the sisters took their walks abroad they were beset by a curious multitude the press being once so great that one of the sisters fainted away and had to be carried home in her chair while on another occasion their bows were compelled to draw swords to rescue them from the mob when too they once went to vauxhall gardens they found themselves the centre of a mob of eight thousand spectators struggling to catch a glimpse of their lovely faces or to touch the hem of their garments when in alarm they sought refuge in a neighbouring box the door was at once besieged by jostling clamorous thousands who were only kept at bay by the sword-points of their escort and when one day they visited hampton court the housekeeper showed the company who were lionizing the place into the room where they were sitting instead of into the apartment known as the beauty room with the significant remark these are the beauties gentlemen with such universal and embarrassing homage it is no wonder that all the gallants in town from the rakish duke of cumberland downwards were at the feet of the fair sisters or that they had the refusal of many a coronet before they had been many weeks in london each sister counted her noble lovers by the score and each soon capitulated to a favoured wooer among maria's most ardent suitors was the earl of coventry a grave young lord of handsome person and courtly graces who had singled himself out from them all by the ardour of his wooing and to him maria gave her hand one march day in seventeen fifty two the world of fashion was thrown into a high state of excitement by reading the following announcement on thursday evening the earl of coventry was married to miss maria gunning a lady possessed of that exquisite beauty and of those accomplishments which will add grace and dignity to the highest station as soon as the ceremony was over they set out for lord ashburnham's seat at charlton in kent to consummate their nuptials of lady coventry who seems to have been as vain and foolish as she was beautiful many amusing stories are told so annoyed was her ladyship by the crowds that still followed her when she took the air in st james's park that she appealed to the king for an escort of soldiers a favour which was readily granted to the most beautiful woman in england thus on one occasion we are told from eight to ten o'clock in the evening a strange procession paraded the crowded avenues obliging every one to make way in exciting universal laughter in front marched two sergeants with their halberds then tripped the self-conscious lady coventry attended by her husband and an ardent admirer the amorous earl of pembroke while twelve soldiers of the guard followed in the rear one day so runs another story which illustrates her ladyship's lack of discretion she was talking to king george the second who in spite of his age was a great admirer of beauty and especially of my lady coventry are you not sorry his majesty inquired that there are to be no more masquerades indeed no was the answer i'm quite weary of them and of all london's sights there is only one left that i'm really anxious to see and that is a coronation this unflattering wish she was not destined to realize for king george survived the foolish beauty by a fortnight lady coventry had no greater admirer of her own charms than herself she spent her days worshipping at the shrine of her loveliness and embellished nature with every device of art she squandered fortunes in adorning it with the most costly jewellery and dresses of one of which the following story is told one day she exhibited to george selwyn a wonderful costume which she was going to wear at an approaching fete the dress was a miracle of blue silk richly brocaded with silver spots of the size of a shilling and how do you think i shall look in it mr selwyn she archly asked why he replied you will look like change for a guinea mrs delaney draws a remarkable picture of my lady at this culminating period of her vanity yesterday after chapel she writes the duchess brought home lady coventry to feast me and a feast she was she is a fine figure and vastly handsome notwithstanding a silly look sometimes about the month she has a thousand airs but with a sort of innocence that diverts one her dress was a black silk sack made for a large hoop which she wore without any and it trailed a yard on the ground she had on a cobweb laced handkerchief a pink satin long cloak lined with ermine mixed with squirrel skins on her head a french cap that just covered the top of her head of blonde and stood in the form of a butterfly with wings not quite extended frilled sort of lappets crossed under her chin and tied with pink and green ribbon a headdress that would have charmed a shepherd she had a thousand dimples and prettinesses in her cheeks her eyes a little drooping at the corners but fine for all that such vanities may be pardoned in a woman so lovely and so spoiled by fortune especially as her reign was fated to be as brief as it was splendid she was perhaps too fair a flower to be allowed to bloom long in the garden of this world before she had been long a bride consumption sowed its deadly seeds in her and she drained the cup of pleasure with the fatal sword hanging over her head she knew she was doomed that all the medical skill in the world could not save her and with characteristic courage she determined to enjoy life to its last dregs she saw her beauty fade daily and pathetically tried to conceal its decay by powders and paints she grew daily weaker but with a brave smile held her place in the vortex of gaiety even when the inevitable end was near she insisted on attending the trial of lord ferrers for the murder of his steward as horace walpole says the seats of the peeresses were not nearly full and most of the beauties were absent but to the amazement of everybody lady coventry was there and what surprised me more looked as well as ever i sat next but one to her and should not have asked her if she had been ill yet they are positive she has few weeks to live she was observed to be acting over all the old comedy of eyes with her former flame lord bolingbroke an unscrupulous rake who seems to have striven for years to make her the victim of his passion her conduct indeed seems never to have been very discreet her levities says a chronicler of the time were very publicly talked of and some gallantries were ascribed to her which were greatly believed however they were never brought home to her and if she were guilty she escaped with only a little private scandal which generally falls to the lot of every woman of uncommon beauty who is envied by the rest of her sex during the summer of seventeen sixty the unhappy lady lay at the point of death in her stately home at croome court bravely awaiting the end until the last few days says mr horace bleakly the pretty countess lay upon a sofa, with a mirror in her hand, gazing with yearning eyes upon the reflection of her fading charms. To the end her ruling passion was unchanged, for when she perceived that her beauty had vanished, she asked to be carried to bed, and called for the room to be darkened and the curtains drawn, permitting none to look upon her pallid face and sunken cheeks. Thus, robbed of all that had made life worth living, and bitterly realizing the vanity of beauty, Lady Coventry drew her last breath on October first, seventeen sixty. Ten days later, ten thousand persons paid their last homage to her in Purton Churchyard three weeks before maria gunning blossomed into a countess her younger sister betty had been led to the altar under much more romantic conditions after one of the most rapid and impetuous wooings in the annals of love a few weeks before she wore her wedding-ring the man who was to win her was not even known to her by sight and what she had heard of him was by no means calculated to impress her in his favour the duke of hamilton while still young had won for himself a very unenviable notoriety as a debauchee in an age of profligacy he had drunk deep of every cup of questionable pleasure and at an age when he should have been in the very prime of his manhood he was a physical wreck his vitality drained almost to its last drop by shameful excesses such was the man who entered the lists against a legion of formidable rivals for the guerdon of betty gunning's hand it was at a masquerade that he first seems to have set eyes on her and at sight of her this jaded worn devotee of pleasure fell headlong in love within an hour of being introduced he was walpole says making violent love to her at one end of the room in my lord chesterfield's house while he was playing at faro at the other that is he neither saw the bank nor his own cards which were of three hundred pounds each he soon lost a thousand such was the first meeting of the lovely irish girl and the man whom she was to marry a man who even in the thraldom of a violent love could not refrain from indulging his passion for gambling so inflamed was he by this new beauty who had crossed his path that to quote our entertaining gossip again two nights afterwards being left alone with her while her mother and sister were at bedford house he found himself so infatuated that he sent for a parson the doctor refused to perform the ceremony without license or ring the duke swore he would send for the archbishop at last they were married with the ring of the bed-curtain at half an hour after twelve at night at mayfair chapel the scotch are enraged the women mad that so much beauty has had its effect if the wooing be happy that is not long in doing the new duchess should have been a very enviable woman as no doubt she was for she had achieved a splendid match the daughter of the penniless irish squireen had won in a few days rank and riches which many an earl's daughter would have been proud to capture and although her ducal husband was debauched and damaged in his fortune and his person he was her very slave and as far as possible to such a man did his best to make her happy translated to a new world of splendour the irish girl seems to have borne herself with astonishing dignity and modesty she might indeed have been cradled in a duke's palace instead of in a dilapidated farmhouse in the wilds of ireland so naturally did she take to her new role when her grace wearing her duchess's coronet made her curtsy to the king one march day in seventeen fifty two the crowd was so great that even the noble mob in the drawing-room clambered upon tables and chairs to look at her there are mobs at the door to see her get into her chair and people go early to get places at the theatre when it is known that she will be there a few weeks after the marriage the duke of hamilton conducted his bride to the home of his ancestors and never perhaps as any but a royal bride made such a splendid progress to her future home Along the entire route from London to Scotland, she was greeted with cheering crowds struggling to catch a glimpse of the famous beauty, whose romantic story had stirred even the least sentimental sympathy and curiosity. When they stopped one night at a Yorkshire inn, seven hundred people, we are told, sat up all night in and about the house, merely to see the Duchess get into her post-chase the next morning arrived at her husband's highland castle she was received with honors that might almost have embarrassed a queen and which must have seemed strange indeed to the woman whose memories of sordid life in that small cottage on the outskirts of dublin were still so vivid indeed no queen could have led a more stately life than was now opened to her the duke of hamilton says walpole to whom the world is indebted for so much that it knows of the gunning sisters is the abstract of scotch pride he and the duchess at their own house walk into dinner before their company sit together at the upper end of their own table eat off the same plate and drink to nobody under the rank of an earl would not indeed the genial old chatterbox adds one wonder how they could get anybody either above or below that rank to dine with them at all it is indeed a marvel how such a host could find guests of any degree sufficiently wanting in self-respect to sit at his table and endure his pompous insolence the insolence of an innately vulgar mind which unhappily is sometimes to be met even in the most exalted rank of life perhaps the proudest period in duchess betty's romantic life was when with her husband the duke she paid a visit in seventeen fifty five to dublin the dear dirty city she had known in the days of her poverty and obscurity when her greatest dread was the sight of a bailiff in the house and her highest ambition to procure a dress to display her budding charms at a dance her stay in dublin was one long intoxicating triumph no queen she said could have been more handsomely treated wherever she went she was followed by mobs fighting to get a glimpse of her, or to touch the hem of her gown, and blissful if they could win a smile from the darlent duchess who had brought so much glory to old Ireland. Her wedded life, however, was destined to be brief. Her husband had one foot in his premature grave when he put the curtain ring on her finger, but, beyond all doubt, his marriage gave him a new, if short, lease of life she became a widow in seventeen fifty eight and before she had worn her weeds three months she had a swarm of suitors buzzing round her the duke of bridgewater was among the first to fall on his knees before the fascinating widow who everybody now vowed was lovelier than ever but he proved too exacting in his demands to please her grace in fact the only one of all her new wooers on whom she could smile was colonel john campbell who although a commoner would one day blossom into a duke of argyll and she gave her hand to handsome jack within twelve months of weeping over the grave of her first husband it was a match walpole says that would not disgrace arcadia her beauty had made enough sensation and in some people's eyes is even improved she has a most pleasing person countenance and manner and if they could but carry to scotland some of our sultry english weather they might restore the ancient pastoral life when fair kings and queens reigned at once over their subjects and their sheep it was under such Arcadian conditions that Betty Gunning began her second venture in matrimony, which proved as happy as its promise. Probably the eleven years which the Dowager Duchess had to wait for her next coronet were the happiest of her life, and when at last Colonel Jack became fifth Duke of Argyle, she was able to resume the life of stately splendor which had been hers with her first duke. By this time her beauty had begun to show signs of fading as she is not quite so charming as she was says walpole i do not know whether it is not better to change her title than to retain that which puts one in mind of her beauty but what she may have lost in physical charm she had gained in social prestige she was appointed lady of the bedchamber to queen charlotte and was one of the three ladies who acted as escort to the princess charlotte of mecklenburg-strelitz to the arms of her reluctant husband george the third it is said that when the young german bride came in sight of the palace of her future husband she turned pale and showed such signs of terror as to force a smile from the duchess who sat by her side upon which the frightened young princess remarked my dear duchess you may laugh for you have been married twice but it is no joke for me her life as lady of the bedchamber appears to have been by no means a bed of roses for charlotte proved so jealous of the attentions paid to the beautiful duchess by her husband the king that at one time she contemplated resigning her post the letter of the resignation was actually written and despatched, but her grace who did not approve altogether of its language added this naive postscript before sending it though i wrote the letter it was the duke who dictated it boswell when describing a visit he paid to inverary castle in johnson's company gives us no very favourable impression of the duchess's courtesy as hostess when the duke conducted him to the drawing-room and announced his name the duchess he says who was sitting with her daughter and some other ladies took not the least notice of me i should have been mortified at being thus coldly received by a lady of whom i with the rest of the world have always entertained a very high admiration had i not been consoled by the obliging attention of the duke during dinner when boswell ventured to drink her grace's good health she seems equally to have ignored him and while paying the utmost deference and attention to johnson the only remark she deigned to make to his fellow-guest was a contemptuous i fancy you must be a methodist in fairness to the duchess it should be said that boswell had incurred her grave displeasure by taking part against her in the famous douglas case in which she was deeply interested and this was no doubt the reason why for once she forgot the elementary demands of hospitality as well as the courtesy due to her rank and why when johnson mentioned his companion by name she answered coldly i know nothing of mr boswell the duchess saw her daughter lady betty hamilton wedded to lord stanley the future earl of derby a union in which she paid by a life of misery for her mother's scheming ambition and died in seventeen ninety thirty years after her sister maria drew the last breath of her short life behind drawn bed curtains in her darkened room to betty gunning the squirene's daughter fell the unique distinction of marrying two dukes refusing a third and becoming the mother of four others two of whom were successive dukes of hamilton and two of argyle End of chapter twenty two